that. We are continuing our series in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we are in chapter 4 today, and we gave you a tool when you walked in, uh, a study guide to help you go through this book together. And so we're going to be in this series for a little while. There's a lot there if you've been reading along with us, and we can't cover it all in a Sunday, in an hour on a Sunday. We just can't. And so we want to give you guys a tool to do that. In fact, if you got this, could you just hold this up to to prove to me you got it? So some of you got this, yeah. If you didn't get it, it's back there at the Connect desk. Uh, We bought a ton of them because we want you guys to have it. Grab one for a friend or a family member. And here's, here's the goal with stuff like this. Uh, We talked about, if you were here at the beginning of the year, our vision for the year is discipleship. And so we want to, as as people in this room, we want to become more fully devoted followers of Jesus, and we want to help others do the same. That's discipleship. That's our focus for the year. And so if you were here for our prayer series, we gave you a prayer guide to go through during the week, Monday through Friday. Now we're giving you this study guide. It's got notes, questions, background, a map, right? We got a geographic on you in this study guide. So, so take advantage of this, but don't just do it yourself. Help other disciples of Jesus. Help make disciples through a tool like this. And so grab coffee uh, with a friend or family member and say, hey, let's go through this together. Uh, There's questions in there for you uh, to dive deeper, and you can take notes and and all those things. So take advantage of this. Uh, Take advantage of this morning. Uh, Grab a Bible. Uh, We're going to cover a lot of verses this morning. Uh, chapter 4, uh, a lot goes down, and so if you don't have a Bible, uh, grab one near you. There should be a black one near you. Pull it up on an app. Look on the screen. If you don't follow along, uh, you're going to miss some stuff. And so follow along with us and take advantage of, of the study guide of this Bible that we have available to us this morning. Uh, here's where we are in the story as you turn there. Uh, the Jewish people have been in exile. Uh, they've been away from their home. Uh, for a long time. And some of them have returned to Jerusalem, Uh, but the city's in bad shape. And so if you were here last week, the walls are broken down, the gates are burned down. We see that in chapters one and two. Things are in bad shape. And and Nehemiah shows up on the scene and is burdened for his hometown. He's not in Jerusalem at the time. He's serving a king named Artaxerxes who doesn't believe in God. He's his cupbearer, and so he tastes the wine, uh, some nice wine, which maybe you think he's living the high life, right? Uh, But he's also tasting the wine to see if it might be poison so he could die at any moment. So high life, but on the verge of death, right? That's what Nehemiah is doing, and he gets burdened for his hometown, and he goes to this king who doesn't believe in God and asks him for permission to go serve his people who do believe in God. And what we said last week, it would be like in our day if you went to your atheist boss and you said, hey, boss, I need some time off, uh, but I need some time off specifically to go on a mission trip, to go with I-68 and and Phoenix Bible Church down to, to serve people in the name of Jesus Christ. I know you don't believe he exists, But I need permission to go on a mission trip and take off work to go do that. And not only that, I need you to fund me. How many of you have done that? Right? How many of you are going to do that for this trip in April? That's a courageous thing to do. But that's exactly what Nehemiah does with King Artaxerxes. And the king says yes. And he does fund him. And God's hand, we've talked about God's hand. It's in our series graphic. Is all over this. He is directing this. He is orchestrating this through Nehemiah, and it's a beautiful story of Nehemiah stepping out in faith. And so we see all of that, uh, and then we get this beautiful picture of Nehemiah chapter 2. He says, let's arise and build. So he makes it down there. He rallies the troops, and he says, let's do this thing, and they start doing it. Chapter 3, that's the whole chapter. 
Uh, We talked about it last week. You have different people, different professions. They're not all builders. They're not all soldiers. Nehemiah wasn't either. He was a cupbearer, not a general of an army, right? And he shows up on the scene, and he rallies the troop, and they they all come together, all these different people, to build. And so chapter 3, a lot of building has taken place, and they've accomplished a lot. And then comes chapter 4, in opposition. And so what you're going to see as you look at the whole of Nehemiah is you're going to see advancement and then opposition. Right? Two steps forward, three steps back. You're going to see that over and over and over again. And the reality is, as we look at Nehemiah, this is really helpful for us, right? Because this is life, right? That all of life is progress and pain, right? If you've lived any amount of life, you know this, that all of life is progress, but there's also pain. You advance a little bit, and then you get opposed a little bit as well. We're going through premarital counseling with a couple in our church. They're about to get married in about a month, and we're really excited for them. It's been a fun time going through this process with them. And our last night of premarital counseling was this last week. And we're going through, we're just kind of summarizing everything, like what it's going to be like to do ministry together as a married couple. We're talking about the finances, the sex, the communication, the conflict, the in-laws, the whole thing that we've spent six weeks or so going through. And we're summarizing all of that. And as I'm giving this final charge to this couple in our church before their wedding day, I find myself start to say, life is going to be hard. Like, marriage is going to be hard. And, and you know what? At one point, I just stepped back and I just said, you know what? All of life is opposition. You're going to have to overcome. You're going to have to overcome in your finances, in the sex, in the communication, in the conflict, with the in-laws. Right? That it's all overcoming every season, every situation. And then I start to realize, like, this is their last premarital counseling session. And my main message is, life's hard persevere, right? Your marriage is a celebration, but it's also a funeral, right? The single you dies, the two become one. And luckily my wife was there too. And she saved the day and she stepped in and she said, I want, I want to let you know though, guys, like marriage is fun. <laughs> it's, it's not all overcoming. Like marriage can be fun, like enjoy the process. And they're just like freaked out. Like, do we want to do this? Are we sure we're doing the right thing? And my wife brings them back in and says, you know, celebrate your wedding day. Enjoy this time. It's going to be beautiful. The wedding dress is going to be great. Uh, The the honeymoon, that's all going to be so fun. Enjoy this process. And the reality is this, right, that both of those things are true. That in marriage and life, you face opposition, but you also experience joy. And, And not just joy outside of the opposition. You can experience, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can experience joy in the midst of opposition. Matthew 5 says this, that blessed are you when when those revile you. Because Jesus was reviled against. Jesus was opposed. Uh, John 15 says that. He says, uh, if they've persecuted me, you're not greater than me. A servant's not greater than his master. You're going to be persecuted, right? And so this morning, welcome to Phoenix Bible Church If you know Jesus, you're going to be persecuted, right? Whether you've been a Christian for 20 years or 20 minutes, you will experience opposition, but there can be blessing through it. There can be joy and fulfillment through it. Why? Because God uses pain to help us make progress. They're not separated, right? 
And I know some of you, maybe you've grown up in church. I know I did, and I heard at times, believe in Jesus, go to heaven, and that's it. Don't go to hell. It's a really bad place, kids. Where do you want to go? Every hand goes up. Heaven, right? And sometimes we do that in churches. And and, and listen, I don't want to do that. I love you too much to do that. I want to tell you the truth. I don't want to just read fragmented sentences of the Bible that talk about your prosperity and blessing. We want to read the whole of God's word that talks about the the progress, the joy, but also the pain, but how they can be woven together in a beautiful picture in your life. Because we want you to go through it well. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at three points. If you take notes, uh, if you've got a bulletin or if you've got a uh, piece of paper, you can take notes and jot these down. We're going to look at three primary things today. The first thing is this. We're going to look at outside opposition. We're going to look at inside doubt. And then lastly, we're going to look at rooted resiliency. And so we'll just kind of walk through this passage and look at all of that together. Let's look at the first point. Outside opposition, we see it in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through Six. It says this. It says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Then Nehemiah responds, verse 4. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Verse 6. So we built the wall. And the wall was joined together to half its height. They're about halfway through the wall, for the people had a mind to work. And so as you look at this passage, we're reintroduced to a guy named Sanballat. Uh, We talked about this guy last week. He shows up briefly in chapter 2 as they're getting ready to rebuild the wall, and he opposes them then. But as they start to rebuild the wall, remember that's all of chapter 3, as they make progress, the opposition from Sanballat intensifies. Uh, What we know about Sanballat is that he was some type of leader in Samaria, an official of some sort. And what most scholars think is that at this time when the Jews re-enter their homeland, that they're going to rebuild, they're going to reestablish themselves, that Sanballat would have been fearful. I have this power, I have this leadership here, and I don't want you guys threatening that. And so as we read this in in verse 1, it says, Sanballat is enraged, enraged. Literally, he's hot in the Hebrew. That's what it means. He is fired up that this is actually happening. They actually started to build this wall. And, And that's what you need to know about opposition, that you can think about something, you can talk about something, And you may get a little bit of opposition, but when opposition intensifies, it's when you do something, right? Like you you show up to church, you hear a a nice sermon, you sing some nice songs, you wear a nice t-shirt, and you'll probably be safe. But you do something, you respond to this sermon, you go through this study guide, you walk this out in your life and with your family and with your friends, you respond to what Jesus has called you to do in your real life, in your real circumstances, 
you're going to experience opposition. In fact, it may intensify in your life. You need to know that. And listen, that doesn't mean there can't be joy. It doesn't mean there's not blessing. It exactly means that because when you experience that, you get closer to God. When you experience that opposition, you're made aware of what was already true, right? That you are desperate for God. I mean, how many of you have experienced that? Things aren't going well in your life, and you realize your need for God more than ever. And in that time, you have some of the sweetest time in prayer with God. In that time, you start to read God's word because you know you have to. And in the times where that opposition's not there, you're like, maybe, maybe I can do this myself. And you miss out on God and what he's trying to do in and through and around you. That's the situation in the book of Nehemiah, and that's what's happening in chapter 4. Look at the text with me. There's insult after insult. Samballot says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it themselves? He says, you're too weak. You guys are too weak to accomplish this. You can't do it. He says, will they finish up in a day? He says, you're too slow to accomplish this. He says, will they revive the stones? He says, are they going to pull off some kind of magic? Are you going to take all this rubble, these broken down walls, and somehow reform them magically and put them back up? He's discouraging them. He's depressing them. You can't do this. He's opposing them. And it's not just him. He has a sidekick, Tobiah, because haters always travel in packs, don't they? Always, right? There's always one, and then there's another one that comes alongside him that gets fired up as well, and that's Tobiah. And apparently, Tobiah was in middle school. If you just look at this, he starts making jokes, right? Look at this. He says, your wall is so broke, a fox could knock it down. It's the original Yo Mama joke, right? I think it's the first one in history. Right, this, is, this is the Bible, you guys. He's making jokes against these guys. His goal is to discourage. He wants to wear them down. Listen, at least psychologically. If not physically, at least psychologically. Right, it's too big. It's too difficult. You can't do this. You don't have what it takes so that they might believe that. They've already made all this progress, but maybe they're hoping if we can just insert some doubt, maybe it will halt their progress. So he's insulting them, opposing them psychologically, but then later physically. We won't go there now, but verse 8, we'll see they put together a plot to physically attack them. So they're attacking them psychologically, later physically. There's a lot of opposition and the reality is it's the same for us. There's, there's different types of opposition. So there is physical Right? Some of us could experience physical persecution, opposition for following Jesus. Most likely not, not here, not now, maybe in the future, right? Uh, but most of us won't experience that. There are a lot in the world who do, and we need to pray for them. Uh, that's one reason why we do global missions, right? So at the very least, we can learn about what other people are experiencing in other parts of the world that we don't have to experience, and we can ex lend a hand and help them. And so there is physical opposition, but there's also psychological, like we see here. This is for you today. You're not trying to build a wall, but you are trying to build disciples, right? You're, you're taking your time, talent, and resources to help build disciples of Jesus. That's what we want you to do. We want you to contribute in that way. And the reality is when you do that, and some of you have experienced this, a coworker may look at you as you talk about your faith or what did you do over the weekend? Well, I went to church or I went to this mission trip or whatever the case may be. And your coworker says, oh, what a crutch, right? Oh, you need faith to get by? 
mean, you think God really helps you? It's psychological opposition. I experience this as a pastor. I tell people what I do for a living, and sometimes, not always, but people say, uh, maybe not in so many words, but they kind of say it like, oh, because you can't get a real job. Or, oh, you just work on Sundays. And at that point, you know, I just lay hands and pray over them uh, because that's all I can think of to do. But, um, but, but you experience this, right? We all experience this, psychological opposition, but we also experience spiritual opposition. Uh, we talked about this when we went through our series in, in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, that it describes a calculated and collective enemy that we all have. It talks about their schemes of the devil, there's principalities, there's rulers, there's demons. It's calculated, there's schemes, it's collective, there's more than one, right? If you follow Jesus, if you do things for Jesus, if you obey Jesus, you have a spiritual opponent. It's a reality before us. There's different types of opposition. And I say that not to scare you, but to sober you, right? Uh, just like with the, the couple that's getting married, I'm not trying to scare them, right? We're trying to sober them. It would be the most unloving thing to do with you, with married couples, with whoever, just to say, like, everything's going to be great, and then send them on their way. No, we need to prepare you. This is a battle. This is a fight. You will experience opposition physically, psychologically, and spiritually. And we need to be ready for how to respond to that. Nehemiah responds this way. As you look at the text with me, he goes from insult to intercession. He just starts praying, right? If you just see the flow of the text, he gets all these accusations, all these just debates that are coming at him from his critics. Three verses of that, and then in verse 4, he says this, Hear, O our God. You notice that? He just starts to pray. Another common theme throughout the book of Nehemiah. We've already seen it. Nehemiah gets opposed, he experiences difficulty, he immediately starts to pray, like other people aren't even there. He just starts a rhythm of prayer in his life. He doesn't even, even talk to his opponents, he talks to God about his opponents. I bet they love that, right? Like they're, they're going at him, probably giving out lines, they've been practicing, like, hey, you're going to say this, Tobiah, and that's going to be the zinger, you're going to drop the mic, it's going to be amazing. That's really going to give them a punch to the gut. And they're really going to weaken, and they're really going to come back at us. And they do all of that, and Nehemiah doesn't even say a word to them. Like, critics love it when you do that, right? When you just redirect, you don't even pay attention to them. You just say, I'm going to talk to God. Because what you're saying doesn't matter what God says does. Because you don't have the power in my life. God has the power. You don't have authority in my life. God has authority. And so Nehemiah begins to talk to the one who has authority, who has power in his life, and he prays, and what he prays for is help and justice. He says, hear us, O God. God, hear us, see us, pay attention to us, know what's happening to us. No, I, I left the king. I traveled all this way. I've rallied these troops. People are risking their lives. We're doing what you've called us to do. Hear us, oh God. Know our pain. Know our situation. Help us. And then he prays for justice. He says, turn this back on them. Don't cover their guilt. Don't blot out their sin. Don't miss this. And then what he says is really interesting. He says, they have angered you. Don't miss that. 
Nehemiah is going through all this opposition, and he says, ultimately, this isn't about us. This isn't against us. This is against God. God called us to do this. We're just his instruments. This is against God. And, and you need to see, maybe some of you struggle with this. Like, he prays some really severe things on these other people. But Nehemiah is praying for justice. And we can talk about later, I'd love to have that conversation with you, all these psalms that talk about that as well, people just being honest to God about what they want to see happen to other people. And we, we struggle with that. And listen, sometimes it's righteous, sometimes it's not. We can get into debates about that. But what I want you to see is this, is that God hurts when you hurt. Because God is your father and you're his kids, and a father hurts when his kids hurt. It's just like with me and my kids, and God's a way better father than me. I say that all the time. God's a way better father than me. I hurt when my kids hurt. God hurts when his kids hurt. I've shared this story before, but uh, when my daughter was about three or four years old, we were at a friend's house eating dinner, and these two older boys were there, and we were all playing, and uh, we're eating dinner at the table, and I'm kind of peeking out, looking at my daughter, making sure she's okay with these older, stinky boys, right? And I look over in the corner of my eye during this conversation, and one of the boys picked up a baseball and threw it at my daughter's face, and he connected. And so as you can imagine, she's like four years old. These boys are like eight. She's bawling her eyes out. She's crying. And so I get up and walk over there. And, I, yeah, I did that a little bit. <laughs> Flexed out, stretched. And, and I, said, I said, hey, guys, let's not throw baseballs at people's faces. Let's just not do that. And one of the boys picked up the ball and gave me a little smirk, and he threw it at my face. And listen, it hurt. Like, it hurt. But you know what hurt more is my little daughter was still crying, right? And she's my little girl, and I'm her father. And so, yeah, it hurt. But what hurt more is somebody hurt my kid. Listen. God's a way better father than me. When you're hurt, when his children are hurt, his people are hurt, he hurts. And he will bring justice. Notice about Nehemiah. He doesn't vindicate himself. Now, he does some crazy stuff later on in the book. Stay tuned for that. But in this moment, he doesn't. What he does is he prays, God, you vindicate me. Ultimately, their beef is with you. It's not with me. You bring your justice. Listen, that's what we need to do when we receive opposition. You don't retaliate. You don't go back at them. You, you pray. And yes, you can pray for help and you can pray for justice. Some of you have experienced pain, things that have been done to you early on in your childhood, recently by a family member, spouse, friend, accusations laid upon you. And listen, in that moment, God feels your pain. He's your father. You need to go to him and ask him for his help that eventually He'll bring justice. Maybe not now, maybe not in your timing, but eventually he'll bring it. And that's what Nehemiah prays for. We need to pray for that as well. And then I love this, verse 6, look at the verse. After he prays, he presses forward. Verse 6 says, so we built the wall. Don't you just love that? You can't get any more blunt than that. So we built the wall. We did what we were going to do. We kept going. We didn't quit. Another way you can win against opposition and continue to follow God in the midst of that, just keep doing what you're doing, right? Don't stop. Don't stall. 
Keep doing what you're doing. That's what we see in this text as well. Our second point is inside doubt. There's outside opposition. There's inside doubt. Look at the text with me. Nehemiah 4, 7 through 12. It says this. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that they were repairing the walls of Jerusalem and that that was going forward and the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard of protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At the time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. And so we saw the first opposition. It was insult. We see the second opposition. It's threat of attack. And in verse 9, again, we see this over and over. Nehemiah, the people, they pray. Don't miss that. They pray. That's their response. But they don't just pray in verse 9. Look at the text. They assign a guard day and night. So they pray and they act. And so this is something for a lot of us. We either do one extreme or the other, right? Some of us pray. Things, bad things happen. Hey, just pray about it. Hey, I'm praying for you. What are you going to do about it? I don't know, but I'm praying about it, right? Some of us go to the opposite end of the spectrum Things go wrong in your life. You're having difficulty in your relationships, difficulty in your job. Hey, hey have you prayed about it? No, <laughs> I haven't done that. Uh, but I got these strategies. I, I got a whiteboard. I got a to-do list, right? And, and we just act. We either pray or we act. We have probably people of both ilks in this room, right? And the reality is what you see in Scripture is both, right? And so this, this gets, gets us into a larger discussion that we don't have time to fully go through today, but sovereignty and free will. Right? How does that all work? What's God doing, and what's our responsibility in that? D.A. Carson, a theologian who believes in the sovereignty of God, helps us with this. He talks about sovereignty and free will, and he says this. He says, it's not a mystery to solve, but it is a framework to explore. He talks about God's divine activity, but also our response within that. Okay? And so do you pray? Yes. Do you act? Yes. You do both. That's what we see in this passage. So with your sin that you're experiencing right now, your lust, your gossip, your greed, your envy, do you pray about that? Absolutely. Do you give that to God? Do you confess and repent about that? Absolutely. But you don't just go back to what you were doing. You don't just go back to that relationship. You don't just go back to that unhealthy habit or that pattern in your life. No, you pray about it, and then God moves you out to respond to that. You act. You put up guardrails in your life with those sins in your life. You don't go back just to doing the same old thing. You pray and you act. In mission, you pray for people to know Jesus. Absolutely. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for people in other countries. Pray for family members, but also tell them about Jesus, right? Also serve them. Sometimes as Christians, we, we just pray, like, I'm praying for you, I got that, but we don't do anything. Do you think they know we're praying for them? Do you think they feel the love of Jesus? Maybe, 
If they know you're a prayer warrior, maybe they do. But oftentimes they need that tangible support, that proclamation, that practice. And so we do that in mission. We do that in the church. We talk a lot about it. It's biblical. Jesus builds his church, right? We say that sometimes. Jesus builds his church. Listen, that's absolutely true. But sometimes what I see is people laying in bed asleep, skipping church, not serving, and they're saying, well, Jesus builds his church, right? Jesus builds his church. He's, he's sovereign over it all. Why do I have to do anything? And sometimes we can misuse that. Listen, Jesus, Jesus builds his church, but somebody's got to bring a hammer, right? Jesus builds his church, but today some people put out signs. And listen, Jesus can do anything. Jesus could show up right now, and he could greet people at the door. He could play a guitar, right? He could preach to us. That could happen. But more likely than not, he's going to use you to do all of that, right? He's going to use you to greet people at the door. He's going to use you as his instrument to work with kids' ministry, to disciple our, our, our little kids. He's going to use all of us and work through us to do that. So does Jesus build his church? Absolutely. Amen. He does, but he uses you to do it. Ephesians 4.11, he equips the saints for ministry. It's called the priesthood of believers that God uses you for whatever reason. I don't know why. He uses us. He gives us the opportunity to be a part of what he's doing. And so is there sovereignty? Is there free will? Yes, they work together. It's a mystery that we need to explore. I would encourage you to read books. We can talk offline more about how that works together. There's so much we could say. Uh, but we need to pray and we need to act, especially in the midst of opposition. That's what we see in the midst of this text. But as they do that, it doesn't squash the opposition. Look at the text with me. Verse 10 it says in Judah, it was said, so people are talking around them. They're in Judah. People are, are talking, and they're saying, maybe we'll fail. There's too much rubble. There's too much work. Uh, we got people trying to kill us. And in verse 12, it says, these are fellow Jews who live nearby. Essentially, what they are saying and what they are doing is saying, call it a day. Right? Just, just quit. Th this is too much. Now, it's interesting as we look at that. These are people who are nearby. These are other people. They're not working on the wall with Nehemiah and with his crew. They're not actually helping, but they do have an opinion. Have you ever experienced that? People that, they're not helping, they're not participating in the work, but they're just coming from the outside, and they're just like, that's hard. Maybe we should quit. And you're like, we? I, I didn't see you there. I, I'm not seeing you do this stuff with me. I, I think you're over there in, in comfort, but you, you come along and you, you start to question things. I experienced this yesterday. My wife ran the, the Phoenix Half Marathon. I ate a waffle. <laughs> she, she ran for two hours. So um, wife's amazing. But she ran the Phoenix Half Marathon. I, I did bring the kids to, uh, to Mesa at 8 a.m., all three of them by myself. Um, I don't know. I feel like that's kind of equal accomplishment. No. <laughs> No, it's not. Uh, but I have all three kids, and we're waiting at the finish line for my wife to cross. And, and as we're waiting, there's this uh, group next to us, and there's people coming through, and they're waiting on their person, so they're cheering them on. And, and she rolls through, and, and the first thing they say is, like, great job, like, awesome, you're so good at this, like, great, you did a great job. But then very quickly, this one girl, she's standing right next to me, so I'm privy to the whole conversation. Um, 
And she's standing right next to me, and she moves from great job to complaining. And she starts to talk about, well, you know, she literally said this. She said, you know, it wasn't easy to get here. The parking, I mean, all the the chaos trying to get to the finish line and navigate all these people, it wasn't easy to get here. And we're there for a few more seconds, and she says this. She says, you know what, man, we've been up so long this morning, like, I'm really hungry. She's telling the girl who just ran two hours, it was hard. My morning was hard. I need some food. Can we get out of here and go eat? Is this over already? And listen, I don't know how much you know about half marathons, but it's hard, right? I'm there with my three little kids. We're watching people cross the finish line vomiting, right? And it's projectile, like we're in the splash zone. And so I'm pulling my kids back, and people are all like vomiting and limping, and and my kids are so funny. They're like, Daddy, why do people do this to themselves? And I said, I don't know. You have to ask your mom on that one. Right? It it was a crazy experience. Like, it's hard running a a half marathon. They literally have salt on their face. Have you seen this? It it looks like, and they didn't do this, they haven't rubbed salt on their face. It comes out of their body. I don't think you're supposed to do that to yourself, right? But, But that's what happens. It's incredibly hard. And here you have these people in jeans and a sweatshirt and sunglasses talking about how hard their morning was. Complaining. Hey, maybe we can get some food. Did you know you know my thing is hard too? Maybe we should just quit. Maybe we should just leave. You have to imagine that's what Nehemiah and his crew are experiencing. Their friends, their family members, their community, these fellow Jews who live nearby, they're not doing the work, but they got opinions. Like maybe we should stop. Maybe we should quit. There's too much rubble. Maybe we should call it a day. That would have have to been hard. That created doubt for them. And they make sure there's doubt. They keep going. The text says this. It's not just a one-off suggestion. Verse 12 says it's coming from all directions. So imagine there's a crowd of people around them that everybody they hold dear in their life are saying, maybe you shouldn't do this. Maybe you should stop. Maybe you should give it up. That's what they're experiencing, and doubt begins to creep in. It says that they do this ten times. Some scholars believe that this was a Hebrew expression that was used. When it said 10 times, it really just meant over and over and over. They keep coming back to create doubt. And notice, this isn't outside opposition any longer. This is inside doubt. Now, before we give them too hard of a time, if we didn't already, doubt happens, right? You've experienced doubt in your life, especially when you face opposition, I experience doubt in my life when I face opposition. Uh, We started this church a little over two years ago, and I had some doubts. Uh, We had a lot of complications, a lot of trials, a lot of things that were hard to start the church. We didn't have any money. We didn't have a building. We didn't have a name, all those things. And there were a lot of times where I thought, like, should we really do this? There was a lot of time family members, friends came alongside me and said, hey, just don't do this. I just call it a day, come back to Texas, just get a regular job, just do that thing. And I had moments of doubt, and doubt creeps in. It's reality for everybody, not just those who plan a church or do ministry. It's, it's in this room right now. Some of you have doubt. But there's a few ways we can respond to doubt. We can ignore it. Right? Some of us do that. We just say, hey, if you're doubting, you're sinful. That's not helpful. Don't do that. 
We can embrace doubt. We can ignore it, but we can also embrace it. We can look for it and just like, is the Bible real? Is it really true? Did this story really happen? You think Nehemiah was a real guy? And we can embrace doubt. We can ignore doubt. But what we need to do is combat doubt. And that's what you see Nehemiah do in the rest of the passage. Verse 13, look at the text. It says this, so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction. The other half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. And so do you see the turn that takes place here? They have a setback, they begin to doubt, should we keep doing this? But there's a dramatic turn and Nehemiah helps lead out in that. They're considering quitting, packing up, and going home. And Nehemiah comes up with a plan, and he begins to challenge people to fix their eyes on God and to equip themselves. He arms the people in verse 13. He arranges them in family groups to fight together, to remember, this is who you're fighting for. You're fighting for your, your spouse, your daughter. This is who you're fighting for. He groups them together intentionally. He gives people roles. Some would build. Some would be ready to fight. Some would alert them of danger with a trumpet. Even the band is involved. They work, verse 21, from the break of dawn till the stars come out. And so some scholars think he increased the pace at which they were doing things. So Nehemiah enters in this doubt, and he brings a resiliency. They experience setback, difficulty, and doubt, but that doesn't have the final say. They combat it with resiliency. The definition of resiliency is to bounce back amidst difficulty. So listen, we need to get this straight. Resiliency doesn't mean the difficulty goes away. It doesn't always mean that happens. It means you bounce back, you fight through the difficulty. You see, a lot of us assume in the Christian life that when we're bold, we don't have fear. Like you see something do, somebody doing something amazing for God, you see somebody moving their family to Mexico to serve the needy, and you think, wow, the courage. Like that God must never have fear. The reality is we all have fear that resiliency is stepping out in faith amidst the fear, is not letting fear or doubt or opposition have the final say. It's resiliency But what I love about this, if you remember chapter 3, think about who's doing this. 
Think about who's not only now building the wall, but putting a sword by their side. By organizing a calculated defense. Think about who's doing that. Chapter 3 tells us it's priests. People like me that aren't strong. Right? That don't have military experience. That don't have construction experience. Like you should see me try to put together an Ikea table. It's not happening. It's not a good, good sight. You have priests. You have gold miners. You have perfumers working on this wall and now defending themselves against an enemy. And I love that because it shows us their resiliency is not built in themselves, right? They don't step out in faith amidst fear because they're strong and because they're crafty, right? It's a rooted resiliency. It's rooted primarily in two things, and Nehemiah gives them to us. He says this. He says, remember God's character, verse 14. He says, don't be afraid. That's the most repeated command in all of the Bible. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord, that he's great and awesome. He's saying he's good and he's powerful. Don't be afraid. God is bigger than your fears. God is more powerful than the power of this opposition. Don't be afraid. You see, oftentimes in the midst of opposition, we get a laser-sharp focus on what? The opposition. We lose sight of the big picture. We lose sight of God. We're just looking at the trial. We're just looking at the opposition. It's like my son who's four years old. Sometimes he'll get two toilet paper rolls, and he'll tape them together, like take all the toilet paper off, tape them together, and guess what he has? Knox, right? Binoculars. And he, he just takes those. We buy him all these toys, all these Legos, but he gets the two toilet paper rolls. Parents, just FYI, you can use a lot of just household products to, to make your kids have joy. But so he gets these out. He gets these knocks out. He gets these binoculars, and he's just looking around. And when he's looking around, all he can see, especially through these binoculars, is what's right in front of him. He can just zero in on things. Listen, we do that with opposition, that opposing voice is the loudest voice in the room. We talked about this. You can have so many encouraging, affirming voices in your life. The one voice who's not, he's the one you think about. She's the one you think about, right? Listen, you need to take the binoculars off. You need to set them down. You need to do what Nehemiah is calling them to do. Realize the Lord, your God, is great and awesome. He's bigger than your fear. Let go of the binoculars. Stop looking at the trial only. Look at your God. It's a rooted resiliency. They're not trained for this. You can't point to their skills. You can't point to their spirituality. This is God, the God of heavens and earth, entering in their equation and bringing them back into the fold and focusing them on him. The second thing that they're able to be resilient about. The reason it's rooted is they access God's resources. He reminds them, verse 14, to fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He says, there's people around you. There's people I've put in your life. Access that. You're not in this alone. Remember these people around you. You have access to, to God's resources. And then he says, we have access to God himself. Verse 20, he says, our God will fight for us. We said it last week that the goal of Nehemiah is not just to get some leadership principles, right? We, we see some of that. If you're a leader in this room, all of you are in some way, you can get some principles from Nehemiah. That's a good thing to get. 
But it's not just to get principles. Otherwise, we could look at the biography of Abraham Lincoln, and we could preach Winston Churchill because they had some great leadership principles. The Bible is different. We don't just get principles. We get the very person of God. You have access to the very person of God, not just some principles. And so today, I'm giving you some points. Uh, Ultimately, the point is God, that you get him, that he's the ultimate resource. The goal is not to build like Nehemiah. Listen, it's to have the God of Nehemiah build you. That's the goal. That's how they have a rooted resiliency. That's how you and I can have a rooted resiliency amidst opposition. And so how do we do that? I just want to give you two questions to ask, to reflect upon in your own life as we close. The first one is this. What is God leading you to do that seems too big or difficult? What is God leading you to do that seems too big or difficult? There should be something, right? Maybe not all the time, but at some point, there should be that in your life. Because God, the the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, is inviting you to be a part of what he's doing on the earth in a fallen world. Like anything he's called you to do in scripture, that's big, that's difficult. Are you participating in that? Do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel the weight of praying for your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus and is lost and going to hell? Do you feel the weight of that? That's a big need. Do you you see things in your life that seem too big, too difficult, ways to serve, ways to live out your faith, ways to lead your family? Guys, listen, as we look at being fathers and dads, we're the shepherds of our home. As we talk about discipleship, we are discipling first our wife and our kids. Is that difficult? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Are there things like that that you're walking in? Are you stepping out in faith amidst your fear? Or are you just saying, it's too hard. Uh, The rubble's too big. It it would be too difficult. There's people opposing me. When I wake up in the morning, there's opposing voices in my own head. I can't do this. Are you stepping out in that? Are you facing these things that seem too big and seem too difficult? In that process, what or who stirs up doubt or fear? What or who stirs up doubt or fear? Are there things of your past you need to deal with, you need to repent of, that are stirring up doubt? You're still that guy. You're still that girl. You can't do this. You need to go to God with that. Repent. Confess that to God. He will take it from you. Are there people, listen, are there people in your life, friends from college, friends, old couples, friends in another part of your life who just always come around you, and every time they come around you, just in their face, there's opposition you're trying to follow Jesus, you're trying to love your family, you're trying to love other people, and just in their face, in their tone, in their words, they just oppose you. They create doubt in your life. Listen, you don't need to leave, you don't need to move away from those people, but you do need to distance yourself. You do need to set up some guardrails, some boundaries in your life where they're not the people that you go to for encouragement, right? You need to have some other people, some people in this church, some people in a community group who do strengthen you. And then you can go to those people and tell them off. No, just kidding. (laughs) Then you can go to those people and speak life into them and speak truth into them. But if those are the people that you're going to and say, hey, encourage me, affirm me, it's not going to happen. You need to find some different people, some people who follow Jesus, who look to his word. Who are those people in your life? How are you fearing man more than God? How are you putting those binoculars on and forgetting about who God is 
You're letting the fear of man control your life. What is that for you? In those moments, what aspects of God's character, what aspects of God's resources do you need to remember to keep going? What helps you put your eyes on on God? Remembering he's great and awesome. What it says in Nehemiah. He's good. He's just. He's also powerful. That's the God you serve. He's your father. You need to remember that. What aspects specifically of God's character do you need to remember? How can you remember that daily? What verses can you go to, people that you go to that remind you of that? Use this study guide. Get with other people to help you keep going, to realize you have a a church. We're called the body of Christ to come alongside you. Listen, you're not in this alone. God's given you resources. You need to remember that. Don't forget that in the midst of opposition. God's given you prayer. He's given you the gifts of the Spirit. He sealed you with his Spirit. You are completely secure in him, like the song we sang earlier. The mighty hand of God is working in and through and around you. Access that. Remember that. You will face opposition in life, right? But God's still going to accomplish his will. In fact, God may use your pain to help you make progress. How do we know that? You look at the life of Jesus. Through the pain of Jesus... All of us experience progress. Through the pain of Jesus, he gives people who are dead life, right? And so Jesus, through his cross, has enabled you to live like this, right? We have way more than Nehemiah had. We have Jesus, the substitutionary death on our behalf, the the death in our place for our sin, empowering us. He rose again, empowering us to live lives in the midst of opposition, and to go through that and make progress in your own life and in the lives of others. How can you step out in that today? How do you need to pray and respond today? Let's do that now. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for an opportunity to see your words, not my words. I thank you that these aren't just principles, but we do get you as a person, even now in our midst. And God, I know there's a lot of things we could be thinking about, a lot of doubts that even now are creeping into our heads and our hearts. And God, I pray in the name of Jesus, you would just cast those out, that we would have faith, not fear, that we would realize our resiliency isn't up to us, that it's rooted in you. God, I pray for these men and women in their lives, in their homes, in their jobs, in real life situations where they're experiencing difficulty and opposition, that they would walk in faith, that they would persevere, that they would walk in in passion, they would keep going. And God, that you would do that for us as a church collectively. In the city, in our world, that you would rise up a church that proclaims the name and fame of Jesus, even amidst opposition. Help us. We need it desperately. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.